Welcome to the Swaplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm James Cohn. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swaplex. It's Hanukkah time. <laughs> Hanukkah time. Hanukkah. And everybody's having fun. <laughs> <laughs> we watched a bunch of Michael Hanukkah movies in the lead up to Mardi Gras. Yeah. How, how did that go for everybody? <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> mood for me. Well, I, I started this because I set out to watch all of his movies in chronological order, which, by the way, I have one left. Oh, my God. Happy End, which is an interesting name for his. I think this is the most recent movie. one, right? Yeah. I don't know. His movies were just making me feel some type of way. And I'm like, well, I'm on a podcast that talks about movies. I got to force <laughs> the guys to, you know, and girls to watch some of these. So sorry if I ruined your Mardi Gras. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Cause like I was not going out a lot. And then one a night, like on the lead up, up to Fat Tuesday, I was oh, like just watching wow. one a day. So I was just sitting in that mood over and over and over again. Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, all his movies are really good. Um, there's not one movie that I've seen from him that I don't like. It just, it really tests, like, my emotional fragility. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I like them all because they sit in my mind for days and months and probably years, I guess. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not for your sake. <laughs> yeah, I was on the journey with James a little bit. And then there were some movies where I was like, nope, I don't need to do that. Um, And I would just go in the other room and watch something else. But since this became a podcast episode, I had to rewatch some of the movies that I had chosen not to watch. (laughs) Um, So I was doing Hanukkah pre Mardi Gras. And then we I watched most of the movies for the podcast after Mardi Gras, which was a totally different horrible experience. Yeah. Because it's like I just feel like so physically and emotionally hungover after Mardi Gras, especially since you have to go back to work in the middle of the week and then mm-hmm. to watch these movies about the desolation of existence as a human being. Uh yeah, it was it was something. It was real something. What did y'all do for Mardi Gras? I haven't talked to y'all about that. Oh, we went to the quarter. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah we, we met around. up with our friend Brian and just walked down Orleans and caught Zulu, went down Sweet. to the quarter and did that whole thing for all afternoon. And yeah, I was pretty wrecked and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I lost James and Brian at one point on bourbon and I did not have my phone. So I climbed on top of a lampost and like waved Sick. my hand <laughs> wow. and uh, we found each other. That yeah. sounds like a... Um, like a La La Land right. Right, right. <laughs> move or something. Yeah, it's like yeah. a New Orleans La La Land. Yeah. And people were helping me, too. They were like, yeah, go for it. And everybody's, you know, wandering around like drunk. So. I, I will say after watching all the Hanukkah movies and then <laughs> going to Mardi Gras, it did restore my faith in like humanity a little bit. Like, good. you know, life is still worth living and people are out having a good time. And the, the vibe was really Good. Everyone was really nice to each other. Sun was so, out. Some, yeah, it was a beautiful day. So I'm like, okay, it's not all bad. I did nice. get badly sunburned, as yeah. uh, the man behind me at Felipe's informed me. He <laughs> he was like, wow, you're, you're really burned. You're burned top <laughs> to bottom. And I was like, okay, I don't want to have this conversation anymore. Um, yeah. what, what did you guys do for Mardi Gras? Um, we had a very chill Mardi Gras. Yeah. Um, Brandon Amazing. and I, like... And Cece and um, Cece's family, family. Yeah. <laughs> and Miko, <laughs> right? 
just like ate fried chicken and drank champagne and then burned a bunch of stuff. Yep. We uh, <laughs> we cool. we did dress up Amazing. a little. We walked to the bayou, had champagne and fried chicken. Then we went home and set a fire, <laughs> even though it was hot outside, uh, just so we could burn things in the yard for um. Felt a few nice hours. just watching stuff burn. <laughs> like I, it just it was a weird headspace where I'm like, I didn't feel like doing anything celebratory because of you know like the war in Ukraine and right. just all yeah. this horrible shit happening. It just felt weird to do anything fun, fun. Yeah. Um, I'm still not ready for crowds yet either. Oh, and honest. the COVID thing too yeah. still kind of freaks me out. So I was like, all right, this is good. And I just remember like watching those flames. It was cleansing. It was so <laughs> spiritually cleansing. That that was another thing with the rewatching some of the Hanukkah movies. Like now that the war in Ukraine is going on, it's like a really eerie backdrop because you know war is pretty much always kind of playing in the background in yeah. all of his movies. So yeah, that was kind of maybe feel some type of way have you been watching anything besides michael haneke movies recently yeah i mean i um i just finished the kanye documentary genius which i really really liked how long is that i know it's in parts it's three parts that are an hour and a half each is this streaming on something netflix Netflix, it's on netflix okay um and i watched like each one as they came out and basically this guy cootie has been following kanye for over 20 years wow. it's been kind of a battle like about releasing the footage and i don't know i don't know how y'all feel about kanye west i'm tired of thinking about him all the time yeah i think that's what <laughs> most people's opinion is is like yeah man this guy is songs. super talented great producer and what like an arrogant and all the drama yeah. like like, isn't he kind of like being super abusive yeah like him yeah. his latest video no. pete davidson and claymation and he beats him up or something it's like yeah i wouldn't say arrogance is what bothers me it's like the embarrassment of like reading someone else's diary like he's got these (laughs) mental health like breakdowns all the time yeah and it's always very public and it's just kind of exhausting to watch i mean sounds interesting but but watching the documentary especially the early the first part especially it's like he's kind of a known producer in chicago but no one really takes him seriously as like a rapper and he is so like adamant, like I'm going to be a superstar. You're going to mm-hmm. talk about me in five years and watching him like storm into the offices of these record labels. Oh, wow. Like, Hey, listen to my music. Like I'm going to be the best. Like, so that kind of stuff's on here. Yeah. And it's like, oh, very cool. but it's him before he made it. And you just see like, he was so determined and I don't know, there was something really inspiring about that. And he seemed like it can come across as like kind of arrogant. It was yeah. like really cool to watch his total belief in himself and like achieving his dreams. And then to watch him in the second part, kind of make it big, become a superstar. And he starts to leave Cootie and some of his old friends behind. And then third part is just like his total, his like mental health and the people around him are just yes, men. It's all this like Twitter drama and, so just to see like we're still living in that third part right and now. we're living in it um <laughs> yeah. and the film is just as much about cootie the documentarian as it is about him oh, very cool there's a period of time where kanye like kind of just goes away and does his own thing and so cootie's like well i gotta focus on my family and my own career i don't know it's it's a really interesting documentary but if you have any interest in kanye i think it really paints a really humanistic portrayal and like Especially the stuff with his mom, oh, Donda, yeah. who yeah. is like such a beautiful woman in this 
movie. Like she is so inspirational and such a good mom. And you could tell she kind of kept him tethered to reality. And like when she passed away, it seems like that was the moment where he totally went off the deep end. Um, So the parts with her were really touching and it's just cool to see him in the room with like Jay-Z and most deaf and they're making music together and like, you know, working on, he's like in his apartment and you hear him like, Hey guys, check out this beat. And it's the beat to like Jesus walks, which became a huge hit. And he's working on it in real time in New York. And his friends are like, yeah, that's dope. That's going to be a hit. And then it freaking blew up. So it's a really cool, like artifact of hip hop as well. So yeah, if you feel like putting in the time, it's, it's really Really good stuff. I also like the perspective of the documentary because it it is made by a guy that was friends with Kanye. So he has really mixed feelings about recording him once his mental health issues become more apparent. And like he'll come to visit Kanye and Kanye surrounded by like other artists and producers. And he'll go into this rant and Cootie is like, I. he records it for a while, but then he feels really uncomfortable keeping it going and stops the recording. So it feels like someone could make a documentary about Kanye that is from a total outsider perspective and feels more exploitative. But this is like, this feels like a really tender artifact. Yeah, it's like his boy that he grew up with. And there's one scene I will spoil is like, Eventually, when Kanye makes a big, Cootie comes to like interview him at his like Grammy after party, and Kanye's drunk, and he calls him by the wrong name multiple times, and like eventually Kanye plays it off as a joke, but you could tell like in that moment he totally forgot who this guy was that he grew up with, and the look on Cootie's face is like total devastation. Like, damn, I've devoted a good chunk of my life to following you around. And supporting you and when you win your Grammy, you forget who I am. It was pretty pretty hard to watch. Yeah. So there's some stuff like that in there too. I feel like we don't get a lot of documentaries about this kind of artist until they're dead. Like that's true. Th- yeah. That like Amy Winehouse documentary is what I'm thinking of right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Where you get this like intimate view of her and not as like this like sort of enigmatic superstar. She's like just a normal person. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting to get that from someone who's like still working and still in the public all the time. Yeah, and there was like kind of a legal battle because Kanye wanted control over the final edit, which he eventually lost. So yeah, anyway, if you're at all interested in Kanye or hip-hop, check it out. I like Yeezus a lot. That album's That's crazy. That's a great album. <laughs> That's so a good. great album. He's got some really great stuff. Yeah. What about you, Brittany? What have you been watching? Um. So I went to the movie theater. Whoa, <gasps> Whoa! There you go. I know. How long has it been? Um, 2020, 2019? Probably like 2020. Okay, wow. Maybe 2019. I don't remember, but a long time ago. And I went and I sat in the movie theater for three hours watching Batman. Wow. Ooh, I want to see it. Yeah. Is it good? It is very, very good. Oh, cool. Um, coming from someone who is not a big superhero movie fan, I do like Batman movies, though. And I feel like at first I was not really wanting to see it because I'm like, oh, they keep making all these fucking Batman movies. Like how how different can it be like who gives a shit and then i decided to just do it um my brother and mother were with me so they kind of like forced it on me too and 
it was so good and it is so unlike it's not like it's unlike any of the other ones like it's not similar to the christopher nolan ones or that ben affleck thing that came out or or the cartoony ones from like the 90s robert pattinson is batman and it works so well because he just feels like void of like emotions (laughs) which is like so batman like he just broods and looks like Nosferatu creeping around a city <laughs> at night. He's kind of a rich weirdo in real life. Yeah, and right. he play, yeah and that he's, maybe that's why he does a really good job of playing a, a rich weirdo in this movie. Um, it's so cool, though. It's very good. It is super action-packed. There's a lot of awesome fight scenes. And watching it in theaters and like just hearing like his big clunky boots like hit the pavement in the rain and just watch him like, you know, body slam people and punch people and stuff is so much fun. And the villains are really interesting. Like no one is cartoony in here. Like they all look like real people. So like the Riddler just looks like a John Denver nerd. (laughs) <laughs> which is so fun to me, which I'm like, yeah, that's probably what a real, like, you know, psychotic Riddler would look like. And Catwoman is just a woman with a cutout ski mask, you know, like it's nothing like super cartoony or anything like that. I don't know if that's a selling point for me. Like <laughs> it, it should, it's, cr- it's so good. You would like it. I'm sure I would like it, but I feel like every Batman iteration since the Joel Schumacher one has been like, we made Batman even darker. We made Batman even more realistic. It's like, but I liked the cartoon There's version. There's a lot of real bats in, a, in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. I'm more excited for the action scenes because just in the trailer, so that, that scene where they're in the dark and it's just getting lit up by machine gun oh, fire, I was yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. looks cool as shit. <laughs> right. It's, it's awesome. kind of like a strobe effect. Uh-huh. He's getting closer and closer. Yeah. yeah. Like, I didn't know when it was going to end because it's hard to measure like three hours in your mind. But, like, I'd be like, oh, there's no way there's going to be a heavier scene than this one. And then, like, (laughs) there's, like, you know, spoiler-ish, I guess. Not really. But there's, like, a scene that incorporates, like, a flood and, like, a bunch of gunfire and a bunch of, like, beating of everybody up. (laughs) And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Like, it's a lot of fun. But, yeah, Robert Pattinson is just so good as Batman. And... He's not a sexy Batman, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I love that he's not a sexy Batman. He's just like, like I said, like a creepy little Nosferatu dude, just like <laughs> hissing around the city and scratching everywhere. <laughs> like, and I love it. I love it so much. So yeah, Batman. So is this the first Robert Pattinson Batman movie? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Very I just cool. love him in general. So. He's great. I've never really seen him in something I like. Well, he was good in Good, good, good Time. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but nothing that I, like I was like, man, that dude's awesome. I liked him in the lighthouse too. Oh, yeah. the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah you're, right. you're right. I know he jerks off on screen a lot. Like he's yeah. done that in, like multiple roles now, yeah. which is kind of great. <laughs> uh, he doesn't jerk off card. in here. I don't even think he, he like has looked at his penis and like his whole life. In That's this why movie. he's so sad. It's so yeah. like uns- like there is like some like I wouldn't even call it romance, but like Catwoman and him, but like. He's just so devoid of romantic feelings where I love that. Like there's a part where, and I think it showed in the trailers, but like there's like a kissy moment, but it's, I think it's more so for her. <laughs> he's just like the statue. And he's like, all right, bye. <laughs> it's a maintenance kiss. <laughs> right. <laughs> the director too. Um, He uh-huh. made those. Uh, oh yeah. 
Planet of the Apes movies. And like the Cloverfield oh, cool. stuff. And I didn't like super love most of the Planet of the Apes movies, but the second one has that image of the ape on horseback with two machine oh, yeah. guns, yeah. which Hello. really is like one of the best action images of right. the past like decade. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> I think about that all the time. It's so over the top. <laughs> I think we, didn't we see that in theaters You and together? I did, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That's the one image that stands out. I was like, whoa. That. I might have even saw that in the trailer. I was like, I got to go see the ape on the horseback <laughs> with I the machine need to guns. See this moment. So, have you been watching any eight movies lately, Brandon? You sound very enthused. I also went to the theater (laughs) yesterday and saw a movie that is two and a half, almost three hours long. Why are all these movies so long? (laughs) Well, this is an Indian film from Mumbai, so it's a Bollywood film. Okay, Uh, okay. So, pretty standard. It's also kind of a superhero movie in a weird way. It's called Gangubai Kathawadi, and it's about a real-life person named Gangubai Kathawadi. Uh, She was a uh, victim of human trafficking as a, like, teenager- she like was trying to become a movie star in Bollywood and you know, her boyfriend promised her the world and then ended up mm-hmm. selling her in this like slave sex oh, trade. God. This is a real life historical figure. She like basically worked her way up in the brothel to earn enough power to become kind of a mafia boss in like the red light district in Ooh, um, wow. Mumbai. And then from there started advocating for the rights of women and sex workers in that district to like actual politicians. Um, so it's like this like rise to power biopic about this real life person who isn't in a lot of like history texts. I think they took it from like this like 30 page stretch in this like larger book about the red light district. Um, so they had a lot of leeway and actually her family, I think is suing them for um, making oh, wow. up some shit. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but it's played as this like superhero character where she's just like super confident and like everyone like gazes at her as she walks down these streets and like, puts men into their place. She slaps a lot of people who disrespect her. And like, she almost has a fetish for making people sit on the ground to look up at her and mm-hmm. like admire her power. Um, <laughs> she is played by Aaliyah Bott, who played the tough as nails girlfriend in Gully Boy. Uh, the one that like didn't take his shit in that movie either. Oh shit. Sweet. Uh, and I loved her in that movie. Mm-hmm. And to see her play this like mafia boss, like drinking uh, little vials of, um, I assume it was either gin or vodka and then like chomping on little cigarillos and like putting (laughs) her feet up places and just not taking shit from everybody, anybody and like giving these speeches about decriminalizing sex work. It was Mm -hmm. like really just cool. I was like won over by its politics in a way I didn't expect. And I cried when she was like talking about giving all these women with no political agency, like dignity Mm -hmm. in a society that like doesn't, care about them as soon as they're like sold into sexual slavery at 14 it's uh they're just like soiled for life pretty much and yeah like, you don't deserve an education you don't deserve like rights you just are a prostitute for the rest of your life with no other function in society and she's like well that's fucked up you know right. we have customers who come here and they're not you know right their humanity is not like revoked for like coming to these places why are the women who work there soiled forever i don't know very good very long drama it's tough like this was not a break from the Haneke stuff. Like the child trafficking stuff in the first hour, I was like, did I make a mistake? This is fucking miserable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then it starts going to like feel good biopic territory, um, mainstream filmmaking, kind of like just raising your spirit stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there any musical numbers? I was just going to ask Plenty, that. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. I don't know how standard this is for modern Bollywood, but she doesn't actually lip sync the um, song and dance numbers very much. Um, they're just kind of playing, um, and she's like posing. So it's almost like a music video thing. Mm, Yeah. Um, Cool. But they 
bring out a lot of big emotions. Like there's a scene where she dances this like festival dance. Um, she gives like all of the women in her brothel and then the women in the entire red light district, like a day off work for the first time in their entire lives. And she's like, we're going to throw a festival. No customers are allowed to like come here. We're just going to dance the night away and watching her like dance this like religious ecstasy dance. But I was yeah. crying. I was Aww. like, I don't oh, know. Cool. It's really beautiful. That sounds and nice. Yeah. I'm going back to the theater now. I'm going to keep watching these Indian mainstream movies <laughs> because like, I feel so satisfied every time I go to one. Yeah. Like, they play at Elmwood all the time and they're okay. always really aces. I was just going to ask you, where are you seeing these movies? And are you <laughs> the only guy in the theater? When I, when I look at like what's playing at AMC, it's oh, always okay. like at the bottom of the list, you know, and there's always like one, two showings How a day. packed are, was the movie theater? This was me and five members of the audience were like Indian people. Oh, um, very cool. <laughs> I felt kind of like an asshole. I'm like, these English subtitles are just for me. <laughs> no one else right. here needs the indie, uh, tra- the indie translations. There's another one next week I'm probably going to go to. Uh, and also Aliyah Bots in one I'm really looking forward to. Um, I don't know how to pronounce the title without it written down, but it's like RRR. Uh, and it's the new one from the guy who did the Chitty Robot movies, uh, <laughs> Theron and 2.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so. 2.0. <laughs> I've seen enough of these now that I like recognized an actor too. So yeah. like, I feel oh, like I'm like cool. starting to get good. into I feel it. Like yeah. You yeah. found your, your thing. Your community. Or They're one community. Great big screen experiences. Like yeah. the song and dance numbers. Um, honestly, it was like, I felt like an old person. I was like, it's too loud in here. My ear is ringing. Uh, but it was still like really beautiful and huge and loud and like shook my body. Mm-hmm. Got all the bass. Wow. Uh, yeah. Highly recommend if just like watch a trailer and see if it like is interesting to you for any of those that come out on a weekly basis. Sometimes there's like really wild over the top shit in them. It's good. What have you been watching? So, mo- I mean, mostly Haneke, but or Hanukkah, <laughs> but I did watch that uh, three-hour folk horror. Another long one. Yeah. And I know that um, y'all talked about that on the podcast last week, um, so I won't, you know, go into it deeply, but I will say I was, I watched it on Lundi Gras, which was my day off from the place that I work, which I was just about to say, but I'm not going to. (laughs) Um, And I was intimidated by the length of the documentary, but I thought it was uh, really, really interesting. They have a lot of different film historians and directors come and talk about these movies. I mean, the catalog that they reference is just gigantic. And it was the kind of documentary where I would pause the movie to get up and... I was like, oh, I hope I still have like two hours left or I still I hope I still have an hour left. And I was happy when I still had a big chunk of time. I was looking forward to every uh, part of the documentary. So I would just put my hat in the ring for recommendations. I don't know what y'all thought of it, but I really liked it. It's called Woodlands Dark and Days Yeah, Bewitched, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Which is a long a title of for a long horror. movie. Yeah. <laughs> is that the one on Shudder? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the director, Kirla Janice. She is the founder of the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, which I Whoa. thought was very cool. Yes, she and I definitely I think she's written some books that are very interesting. House you need to go to that. Women is yes, like that's true. I really want to. Right. I like I want to <laughs> go to the Institute of Horror Studies. Um, Get a degree. Do they offer degrees? I don't know. I just found out about it 10 minutes before the podcast. Very but cool. I will look into it. Yeah. And Brittany. If they do offer degrees, I will let you know and we can. Yeah, we're going. <laughs> yeah, we're going. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like the documentary, but 
the main movie I want to talk about was uh, Sister Act. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh my God. One of my favorite soundtracks. So I can't remember why. Me and James were just watching TV last night. And I can't remember why this came up, but I was like, have you ever seen Sister Act? And he said, of course I have. And then we immediately watched it. <laughs> um, th- so this was directed. It was made in 1992 by Emil Ardolino. Probably anybody listening to this podcast knows about this movie, but um, it's about a lounge singer in Reno, played by Whoopi Goldberg, who is just so fun in this movie, um, who witnesses her mob boss boyfriend uh, killing a guy. So she has to go like under, not undercut. She has to go into witness protection, basically, in a convent in San Francisco. And she like brings Motown to the choir in this convent. She's like too fabulous not to draw attention to herself. Right. They're like, <laughs> exactly. like a killing yeah. seal. Right. Yeah, exactly. And right. She's like supposed to be laying low and then she gets like a but like the choir becomes this big hit and it brings all these people to the church and they're doing all of this community work and then a documentary team comes and or a news team comes and records and then the like the pope decides to come and watch them which is insane the pope was getting down yeah. at the end <laughs> right and his he was slowly swaying from side to side and clapping That's a big deal. yeah exactly um but i watched this movie probably like 10 times when i was a child i can sing every inflection of the Motown choral arrangements um, just because it is like a part of my childhood soundtrack. And uh, yeah, I just, I love this era of Whoopi Goldberg. Like it was, it was kind of around the time of Ghost yeah. too. I just think it's a totally delightful Yeah, movie. a few things that surprised me watching it is like Whoopi Goldberg can do that thing where like you laugh at her She's hilarious. And then the next scene, it can be dramatic. Yeah. And she it's the same in Ghost, where it's like, oh, she's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Patrick Swayze is channeling himself through. You're like, oh, my God. Like, I'm feeling things. Like, she can do that so well. And also, the thing that was surprising is, like, there's only three musical numbers. What? Besides the montage. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. with her in the actual choir, there's only three. But they're so damn powerful. But they're so damn good. And, yeah. like, it really makes the whole movie. But, like... I don't know why I thought there was a bigger stretch in the middle where it's like her kind of getting to know the different nuns and like the movie is bookended by the mob stuff and you really only get like 50 minutes of her and the nuns and like I don't think I had a problem with it though because when the mobsters come back at the end and they're running around in Vegas it's just hilarious but I don't know I kind of looked at it a different way and still really enjoyed it but I was like damn I thought there were more like maybe you're inserting scenes from uh, Sister Act Two back in the habit. Maybe Sister <laughs> Act Two like is like full on like it's a, a music competition so much, movie. Yeah. yeah, but like that climactic I like I will follow him and there, there's like this dolly, this like sweeping dolly shot around her as she's leading the choir, and then the Pope's up there. I mean, that's like some iconic yeah shit, dude. Yeah, so. she made Catholicism spicy. <laughs> I think if I had one critique. It would be that it takes a long time for her to get to the choir. Like mm-hmm. in the, she joins the convent and then for like a half an hour, she's doing kind of menial labor around the convent and hating it um, and like sneaking tomatoes from the garden. And then w- once she becomes the choir director, it's like it really kicks up into high gear and I love it. So I wish that she had been put there initially and like 
gotten to know the choir members and then kind of slowly become the the choral mistress but yeah it was it was a very fun blast from the past and the side characters and actors are fantastic like they make the movie just as much as whoopi does captain jimmy yeah mm-hmm. adorable i don't remember the little mousy one i don't, I don't know i don't know her name yeah but like, <laughs> she's good in that too uh, but even like the older nuns like yeah. they have little one-liners and they're just all hilarious yeah i know? think mary wilkes maybe plays okay. this nun uh who's like from a convent in Vancouver and she's like a real like hearty ass nun and it's yeah it's wonderful well, that's enough feel good you know yeah, pick me up we're about to talk about four Michael Haneke movies from I think pretty much like from the beginning to like recently in his mm-hmm. career we mm-hmm. covered a, a good wide ground and he de- he's a director too that kind of has different periods yeah where he explores so I think we'll cover a lot of ground. We didn't touch a lot of the major ones either because we did Cachet before on the podcast. We've done Amour. Amour, which I had to remind myself. I went back and listened to Cachet and I was like, oh, I liked that movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when we watched no, you it. hated Amour. I hated Amour, yeah. And that's why I'm very interested to see your opinions of these films because yeah. I think uh, he's a very difficult, challenging kind of filmmaker so the only other major one we didn't touch was funny games which might come up again some other time on the podcast who knows yeah uh, it could fit in a lot of different slots i'm surprised we haven't talked about that one yet yeah it seems it's like kind it of seems his, like most iconic movie like it's his first big movie and why he became an international definitely the first one yeah. i saw and yeah. it's his main like genre it's his genre film too yeah yeah well, there are other genre movies, sort of, in this yeah. list, and there's also just some straightforward dramas, so mm-hmm. we, we have a full range here. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. There's, in all uh, other arts uh, art forms, there's a great uh, area of freedom for the uh, spectator in uh, painting and sculpture and uh, musical compositions, then it's up to the uh, recipient of the work of art to interpret it. Uh, where language is used, then already the situation becomes more complicated and the sense of uh, freedom is more restricted. As, as soon as you specify things, as soon as you name them, then you are limiting artistically the uh, recipient's uh, room for interpretation. Um, nonetheless, however, uh, in language, with literature, there's still a great deal more freedom because the images are created by the recipient in uh, his or her mind. In film, however, uh, the director robs the audience of that possibility replaces their images with their own uh, images. So my intention is as much as possible to restitute at least part of that freedom to the audience and uh, restitute part of their ability to create their own images and own explanations. So like we talked about in the intro, there is a director, Mikhail Hanukkah from Austria. I've seen his movies over the years I think starting with Funny Games, and then I think after that it was Cachet and Amour. And his films have always really stuck with me to where I think about them a lot. And just something clicked in my brain. Where it was like, this guy is a really interesting filmmaker. I want to explore his entire filmography because he only has 12 films. So I set out a couple months ago to watch them all in chronological order. And now I've and basically forcing everyone to join me on this journey. It's a painful journey, but I feel like it's worth visiting these films. It's got to be unusual to watch a bunch of his movies in a row, right? Like that can't be like the ideal way to consume him, but you've been doing it. But it it's interesting that a lot of his like techniques uh, and his themes, they sort of repeat themselves. And like 
I find it really interesting the way his films make me feel. And to start it off, we'll talk about The Seventh Continent, which is the first film he made. It's from 1989. So he's actually had a pretty interesting career where he worked in theater and TV for decades before he actually made his first real movie. So at this point, he was already in his 40s. So it doesn't feel like a amateur doing like this is somebody that has been working on film for a long time. So the film is really about this upper middle class family. George, the father, I don't know what he does in this movie. He like looks at numbers. Kind of like engineer. Inge- yeah, yeah, I was thinking like some like kind he's of in a power plant or something. Power plant, yeah. yeah something and his like um, wife Anne is a um, optometrist. And they have a daughter, Ava. The beginning of this film is really interesting because we start off, we're in a car, in a car wash. And it's, you know, Hanukkah style is like very slow, methodical, beautiful shots, but very static and long takes. And you just see them slowly go through this car wash. And then the first 15 minutes or so is the family kind of going about their everyday routine. But we don't actually see their faces. We just see the food on the table, the bed, you know, him putting on the slippers, but we never actually see them as people. And eventually we start to see them just kind of doing their everyday thing, going to the store, going to work, making dinner, repeat. And it really like is hypnotic in a way, just watching them kind of do the thing that we all do every single day. But you get the sense that there is something missing and there's a darkness lurking under there. And it's split up between three different years in this family's life. But there's a scene early on where Anne has written to George's mother being like, hey, you know, she kind of keeps her up to date on what's going on in their life. And her mother had passed away recently. And she's like, you know, our brother's taking it pretty bad, but he went and got some treatment and he's great. Now he took a vacation and the family's doing good. George has a promotion coming up and, you know, Eva, she's our little troublemaker, but she's doing great. Everyone's great. So it cuts to a year later. Again, there's this bubbling tension. This family is not quite right. There's another scene where Anne breaks down in a car wash and you get the sense of like this family is not happy. And the second year is essentially them doing the same thing they did in the first year. And then we get to year number three, which takes on a really sinister vibe because we see them, yeah, George quitting his job, them taking out all their money from the bank account, George buying hammers and shovels and saws. And it's like, again, just like fixated on these objects and you get the sense, oh man, something really bad is going to happen. And in a what I think is a great final stretch of the movie, they systematically destroy their lives. They literally lock themselves in the house, destroy all their worldly possessions. They break all their furniture. They cut all their clothes. They rip up their photographs. They break their records. It's like almost Marie Kondo style where like... <laughs> They don't do it like as like a pile. Like they pull out each record one at a time, hold it in their hands, yes, and then right. smash it. And like the even the clothes is just like let me just you know 
chop this one up, then chop this one up instead of just going nuts and like (laughs) destroying like a shit ton of stuff at one time. They're super like dainty. Yeah. And so about it. (laughs) uh, And essentially the family commits suicide at the end. And that was ultimately their plan. And then when I rewatched it with Hannah, it was interesting knowing what, because I didn't know what happened the first time I watched it. So I was really shocked. And rewatching it again, you're like, yeah, I could kind of, you could see it. Like it was there all along. No one openly said it, but it's a pretty bleak movie. Uh, it's a interesting start to his filmography. It's bleak as fuck, but it does kind of give you a hint of films to come. I think this is maybe his most like pure, provocative, in your face, nihilistic film that he's made. I, I personally think it's great. It did make me feel good, but I think it is really getting at something about just how hard it is to be alive and do the same mundane things over and over and over again. So I don't know, I'll kind of open it up to you guys. What what impression did this movie make on y'all? So uh, this was my first time watching it, and it's probably one of my favorites that we've watched today. And there's a particular scene that was so haunting to me specifically and like it plays in my head every like multiple times throughout the day like every day and it's like when they're all sitting as a family when they're after they've destroyed all their shit and they're about to like kill themselves there's this um power of love music video (laughs) that they're watching and it's uh, i can't think of her name jennifer rush Mm -hmm. she was a a pop musician she was from new york but she was super big in germany um and they're just sitting there like watching this like song play as a family and they just are like emotionless and it's not just like a clip it's like you watch them watching it Mm -hmm. for the whole song Mm -hmm. and then like you see their faces you see the song you see like the, that TV glow in their faces while they look super drained. So I don't know. I just keep thinking about that scene over and over again. Like to me, that was the scene that was the most like unsettling because it's like this sad love song and this like family that is just in this horrible mental mm. place. And then there's another repeat of that with meatloaf. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you that is, meatloaf I was like, is meatloaf. <laughs> It did same vibes. Yeah, it didn't hit me as much as that right. one. But oh my god, Whew, very haunting. And it's interesting that they destroy everything except the television. Right, and that, I know. Again, that's something Hanukkah comes back to over and over. You they're know, still consuming media. as they're dying. Right. Yeah. Because uh, the, the movie's like all about like getting rid of all these consumer products and how they're not fulfilling. But yeah, they're still they're still consuming in their dying breaths after they've destroyed everything but the TV. I just kept thinking like, yeah. what's the like, even when they, like, flush the money down the toilet after ripping it up and all that kind of stuff, like, I don't know, like, what do y'all think was the reason for them, like, just tearing everything up and, like, getting rid... Is it that, like, when we die, we don't want any remnants of our lives or, like, we hate all this and we don't want anyone to take our shit because it ruined our life? Like, I don't... Well, so I kind of... James and I kind of talked about this, and as they were flushing their money away, I just said, you know, imagine doing all of this... And then deciding you don't want to kill yourself. Um, And James said, you know, maybe that is part of it. Like, you destroy everything you have so that you basically don't have a choice. Oh, you don't like chicken out at at that point. I want to talk about the money for a second. Because, like, I think the movie's just, like, basically making fun of that, like, 80s 
middle class like comfort where mm-hmm. like you surround yourself with all these like comfort objects and like luxury goods. And this family is like pretty well off. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they just find it unfulfilling, like going through these like daily routines, all these like you know, pop songs to entertain them right. and cover the sounds of them chewing. Cause they, they turn the pop song down uh, while they're eating and like it becomes so uncomfortable to yeah. listen to them eat. Mm-hmm. Uh and just like removing that comfort from their lives and like just it felt like a critique of just like how you can't buy happiness and like that's what's being sold to us. Mm. There's a point in every Michael Haneke movie um, that pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't happen in this one until after the movie was over. Oh, the end credit thing? No, no, no. I was reading about his intention with the movie because he is an anti David Lynch type where like he will explain what he meant with every film he makes. Like he gives interviews where he just like, Lays it out on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to watch all of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> and in this one, he said, you know, I read this news story about this family yeah. that killed themselves and police found chopped up bits of money in the plumbing, which, you know, indicated that they like flushed money down the drain. And I knew that would offend people oh, more yeah. than a family killing themselves. And I was like, fuck you. Because first of all, this guy grew up like well connected and rich in this like filmmaking family and like basically had a pretty good career and like comfort his entire life and like had the opportunity to become an artist the way he mm-hmm. wanted to. And then he's like shaming people for wanting money. Do you know why people want money? So they can clothe and like house themselves. Right. But I like that he's provoking me in that way where like he well, still gets my like heartbeat. And up. That, that's what I was going <laughs> to say is like Hanukkah is a provocateur. It's like he wants to, I think he wants that reaction. And if you watch the actual interviews with him in person, he has a twinkle about him where, and he says things where it's like, I don't know if he actually believes, believes this, that, yeah. but he's saying it to make me think about, and I know that can be very frustrating, but that's sort of what I like about it. I don't know if he actually feels that way. That yeah. would offend me if I was like a, you know, person who really struggled paying my bills every month. And then I've read about a wealthy family that destroyed their money instead of donating it. Right. I that, would be like, fuck yeah, you. Yeah, that was my, re- <laughs> like when they were ripping up all the shirts, I was like, these are very nice shirts yeah, that you could just it. donate. donate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I'm like, let the Goodwill and Salvation yeah. Army come in and sweep all this up and yeah. give your dead things to somebody. Like that seemed like such a bourgeois kind of attitude like we're going to kill ourselves so we're going to destroy all of our possessions like without thinking you know this doesn't bring any joy to me but it could be like very practically useful to other people yeah and to be fair the movie doesn't like make saints out of them for like destroying these goods it's not like them leaving this earth is serene it's gross like them killing themselves like puking up the poison and like having to inject it in their blood because their stomach couldn't keep it it isn't glorifying no suicide or anything like that it's nihilistic like you said like it's just like a you know and then this happened and that was also fucked up (laughs) uh, (laughs) that's when i realized they were gonna kill themselves it took me a second um (laughs) right like i thought they were gonna kill like somebody and then they were going to leave and go to, like, another country. But then when I realized they were going to... I kind of felt like they were going to kill themselves and they had the really nice cheese platter. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> that what I would do. Have moment. a really nice meal. Right, and yeah. I'm like, wow, they're probably going to kill themselves. And <laughs> yeah. then they started destroying everything. And I'm like, I think yep. they're going to yeah. kill themselves. That's where it's going. That's what's happening. I, I kind of have a similar... I had a similar reaction to you. Another interview I read about Hanukkah talking about animal violence and his... Which is like something we'll come back to. And it's like a thing he keeps 
Well, in this one, he films fish dying in real time, and you kind of just have to watch them run out of oxygen. That fucked me up yeah, pretty bad. But he says he intentionally puts that in films because he feels like people have more of an affinity for like fish and dogs and horses than they do fellow human beings. And I'm like, hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that, but <laughs> I it's don't like, know. <laughs> right. Right. But like you said, it's that exact same. Like, I don't know if you truly believe this, but you're provoking me right. to think about it. Yeah. And like, that's what his films do. It's like, yeah. with that objective <laughs> camera, it's just like, look at this, think about it. You, and I'm not going to tell you what the answer is. And even in interviews where I, pretend to give you the answer it's probably not the God. real so it's like that trickery and messing with I, your I head. think he genuinely has a more misanthropic worldview than i do like he like kind of hates humanity in a way i try not to i don't think he's trying not to like i think he just kind of like despises humans mm-hmm. as a group yeah and i i mean i don't really agree with those summations and that's one thing that has bothered me about him. like he believes the worst in people's intentions and people have horrible intentions often, but Mm -hmm. I think not in the ways he thinks like with the flushing the money down. I don't think that people were more offended by that than them killing themselves. I think that's like outright not true. And then with the fish, like, okay, it bothered me to watch this family kill themselves, but also I know that they're actors like, did you really just kill fish? Right. You know, that like that bothers me because I don't want to. And it's, you know, that happens in other in other films that we'll talk about, like mm-hmm. where you are actually seeing an animal die. Whereas I know everything else is just like it's just a performance. Mm. If I actually saw a human being like right. dying in front of me, I would be totally disturbed and mm. probably more than seeing an animal die in yeah. front of me. I, it's like, is there some sort of meat? You know what I mean? Meter that we look at to be like, oh, like death sympathy more for this than this. Like, right. I think it's just hard watching any yeah. being well, die. Watching, yeah. Living beings dying. Yeah. But, but I think what, you know, and like funny games talks about this and someone's we haven't talked about on this podcast, but I think it's that idea that like when we look at something through a screen, there's like a disconnect. Like when we see war, like war images on a screen, it's obviously different than seeing it in real life. And it's that like blending of the real and the unreal. And that's why like TVs are always on and his movies. There's always war footage. Always like white noise in the background. Yeah. 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 I think that's pretty consistent in like most of his films. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's his, he keeps coming back to it because it's an interesting idea. Like, can we really humanize and have empathy when we're just getting it, all our information through media? There's something about this movie, like that feels like so close to what he did over and over and over again, but like, it's not quite there yet. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like you said, the first shot is a static shot of a car in a car wash. And you're like, well, this is brilliant because it both captures the, sort of banal consumerism Mm -hmm. of the movie in like a single image. And, you know, car washes are kind of sinister and boring. Mm -hmm. Like when you're in them, you're like, I can't do anything with myself. There's just loud noises thundering around It's like you're a cog in the machine. But it is exciting and it smells good. Yeah, it's also kind of, it's also kind of pleasing. Yeah. These objects that are cataloged in the first two segments, um, I know they're supposed to be empty, but like, I find them pleasing to look at. Yeah. I was kind of reminded of what Brittany said about last year at Marion Bad. 
um, last time we recorded. It was just like, this movie's actually pretty like soothing in a way that Michael Haneke yeah. movies usually aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're just looking at like a catalog of consumer goods right. from 80s Austria. The sound design was pretty good too. I thought it was like household ASMR, like keys clinking <laughs> and like the coffee maker going and like plates. So yeah, it was like kind of soothing and and mesmerizing all his movies are like that like it didn't really hit me until like i watched all these where i'm like this dude puts no soundtrack yeah it's just you hear everyone's asmr stuff in their house or their cars or like ooh. but i think this one's different because he has an eye for making these things look pleasing Mm -hmm. i was like oh he didn't quite figure out his static shots from a distance yet like he's framing things symmetrically and making them look nice in a way that I think he deliberately moved away from later. And then it gets to the suicide portion of the third act. I'm like, oh, that was on purpose. Okay, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was like intentional because I think this movie flips his usual structure backwards because usually Haneke movies start off in this sort of recognizable thriller template where your blood is pumping and you're like, oh my God, these awful things are happening. And then you kind of expect it to escalate the way that yeah. normal movies do. But instead he cuts it off and you just have to sit in the aftermath and like mm-hmm. watch it quietly and like think about what happens after these thriller beats. Um, and in this one, it's exactly opposite. Like it starts really like serene and then ends with the like blood coursing through your veins, like upsetting stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's like his best movie by far, but I do think I think it's one of his best, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, it's like in my top two or three, probably. But he's not, you're right. It's not quite refined. But I think the serene nature of consumer goods, like it works with that visual style. It's like, yeah, a bowl of cornflakes with some sugar looks pretty delicious. <laughs> like, you know, that coffee looks good to drink. And like yeah. to flip it at the end, it's like pretty good stuff. So, yeah, I, I thought. Seems like everyone liked it and it's yeah. pretty yeah. thought provoking. And one more thing I wanted to touch on with this one in particular, because he sort of gets away from it in later films, but like he does this thing too between shots where there's like a long period of dark. Like it's not like a quick edit. The scene will end and then it just sort of like it's black for a little bit and then we'll move to the next scene. And that like is very different than what you see in Hollywood films where it's like image after image after image. And the way this is, it really lets you like sit in it for a second and then sort of dread about what's coming next. And he does that in a lot of his earlier films. I think it's really effective. I actually did notice in the first 20 minutes or so, there are a lot of setups. Like the camera doesn't move a lot, but like it keeps resetting like, every few image like i don't know mm-hmm. it doesn't really sit and stuff i don't know i was just like uh, i was like this isn't the haneke i know like this is interesting that you know it felt more normal as a movie at first but i i think undeniably by the time you get to like the poison part it's like that's where it is like that's his usual thing by which i mean i felt fucking miserable watching. <laughs> <laughs> to me besides the fish stuff and the ending i thought the scene with the brother was really affected where they're just like you know they already said the mom died he took it bad and they're trying to have a nice dinner mm-hmm. and they listen to a pop song and and then he asks his sister like what did you use like what spices did you use and like that banal conversation is what breaks him down and that's another thing and like all of his movies there's 
usually at least one scene where a character just totally breaks. There's also usually a slap, I think. I think you could do like a, a super cut of, of like face slaps. Physical violence. Does that happen in this movie? Yeah. The mom slaps the daughter oh, when right. she when pretends she says, to like, be tell blind. me the truth, I won't hurt you. Yeah. And, and then, then immediately. Yeah. Yeah. That poor little girl. A big takeaway from Hannah. I feel like the Austrian children need help. Like yeah. <laughs> bad things are happening <laughs> to children in Austria. I chose this period in this country because I think that it uh, offers the most prominent horror of uh, extremism of any uh, kind. That said, however, I think that it would be an error to uh, take, uh, to reduce the film rather, to this specific period and to this specific country. I think that the Germans should see this film as a film about Germany. However, I think in other countries, people should see the film as uh, something about their own countries. One good thing about this conversation for me is like, I need to psych myself up to watch Hanukkah movies. And I had two on my watch list uh, for the longest time. And we chose both of them today. So I cleared them out. Um, I ended up adding another one at the end of this, though. Time of the Wolf. Was that good? It's one of my least favorites, but it has one of my favorite endings of any of it. Okay. The, the last final sequence is beautiful and one of the best things he ever did. It's, it's dreary, though. I mean, it's like post-apocalyptic <laughs> people hanging out in a bomb shelter arguing with each other. <laughs> but it it ends on a really like beautiful, actually uplifting Oh, no, nice. which is very unusual for yeah. him. So, yeah, check it out. I will now get around to that, but I did clear my other two. Uh, one of them was Benny's video from 1992. This is a movie I wanted to see because it had like a video art aesthetic, from what I could tell. And I'm always like a fan of that, like camcorder mm-hmm. analog yeah, yeah. of filmmaking. I think specifically he is attacking, you know, I feel like there's always like a moral stance he's taken that's very clear in each of these movies. And in, the, in this case, he's attacking like, again, consumer culture, but specifically like media consumption mm-hmm. in the video store era. So like this kid, Benny, is a child of like wealthy parents, kind of like the upper middle class, you know, banal characters of the seventh continent. They don't really pay much attention to their kid, but they give him enough money and freedom to do whatever he wants. Um, And he consumes a lot of just trash culture. Like he eats McDonald's and he like listens to thrash metal. Watches action movies. He watches uh, like video store era, like horror schlock. Like I think Mm -hmm. Toxic Avenger is the one they show him watching a few times, which I felt indicted by that. (laughs) I felt indicted a little bit in Seventh Continent watching the dad shower. I was like, oh, that's what my pudgy little body looks like. Uh, (laughs) And then uh, watching this kid sort of brain dead, halfway watching Toxic Avenger, waiting for the gory violence to pop up. I'm like, yep, that's that's me, like a little teenage idiot uh, (laughs) watching these uh, trash horror films from the 80s. So Benny also has his own camcorder and likes to make his own movies um, and is interested in Faces of Death style like black market videos of like real tragedy. Uh, He's particularly obsessed with an image of a pig being slaughtered with one of those like bolt guns. Mm -hmm. And he likes to rewind it over and over again and watch the second that the life goes out of the pig's eyes. 
Which I know I was saying earlier, like there's always one moment in these movies that, that pisses moment, me off. That <laughs> ten minute up. moment that came twice or over right? and over, over again, where more than once. Yeah. Like I didn't watch any of it. Just let you know. Sorry, <laughs> I don't blame you. But it, that's the vegetables you're supposed to eat. You know, like that's what you're supposed to like get out of this. Uh, uh, so I just make like, you I listened to person. it, but I didn't look. I think that's fair. Uh, yeah, Michael Hanukkah might have a different take on that. Like you didn't, you didn't get the experiment, Brittany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, the kid is desensitized to violence because of this kind of like imagery he keeps putting in his brain. Um, he meets a weirdo at the video store and invites her back up to his empty apartment and shows her his favorite pig killing video that we've already seen a few times. <laughs> and then, uh, the fact that she's not horrified immediately is like amazing. Well, because she's me. also a video star. Yeah, right. she's a yeah. Big, yeah. Out like, of the videos. They're all desensitized. I, I just really wanted these weirdos to get together. Well, and- he does subvert that. Though. There is a second where you think like, are they going to like hook up? I mean, you know, in the back of your head, that's not what Hanukkah would do, but... Mm. It sort of subverts that expectation like, oh, this could be a childhood romance and it goes terribly wrong. <laughs> and the way it goes wrong is um, he ends up killing her. Uh, he pulls out the bolt gun from the video, the exact same one somehow, uh, and then loads it and puts it to his chest and dares her to kill him. And she says no. He calls her a coward. And then he puts it to her chest and she calls him a coward. So he pulls the trigger and kills her. Uh, kind of lazily cleans up the mess, like kind of stores her in a closet with some stuff on top of her just so she's out of sight. And then his parents find out about the murder um, after he's just sort of like returned to normal life and just sort of like shrugged it off. And they decide to cover it up for him. <laughs> they're a little concerned about his murderous <laughs> streak, <laughs> but for the most part, they're just concerned about saving face. And they uh-huh. want to just like not be seen as neglectful parents, which they are. And his dad was way more concerned about him getting a buzz cut than yeah, because mm. it's, yes. it's image based, right? Exactly. He was like, "Aren't there more sensible so ways horrible. to rebel?" Which is a ridiculous thing to say <laughs> anyway. But then, yeah, they find out that he's killed her. Honestly, I could see why if you're in Austria, uh, you want want your right. kid to come home as a skinhead, right? Like it's kind of like a sensitive topic. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. But it is more about you know how people perceive him than it is yeah. about his actions or his moral character. Um. While the dad chops up the body and flushes most of it down the toilet, uh, we don't see that. We see the mother take Benny away on a vacation. And uh, Benny continues to view the world through his camcorder. We see him a lot sort of editing these like static shots of the camcorder footage of him killing this girl um, and of later on his vacation. Like he can't look at anything with his own eyes. He likes to look at it through the camera. His mom breaks down crying in the middle of vacation. He's like, what's wrong, mom? Like, he like, doesn't understand why she's upset. And that's another one of those static shots where it goes on a long time and it just like makes you feel so uncomfortable. And yeah, the movie just sort of falls apart. Like it starts off as a recognizable thriller, I would say. And then as it's going on, it's like, well, when is he going to kill again? Because that's what normally happen in these movies. And you're like, why am I looking forward to him killing again? So you're kind of like questioning your own like thoughts as a consumer and Haneke doesn't really give you that out. You just sort of just like sit in the aftermath of the murder, which I feel is pretty standard for his thrillers. Yeah. He tends to have very anticlimactic endings. Yeah. That's kind of his thing. This one does have a resolution. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I don't know if necessarily need to talk about that, but the kid basically has no reason for killing. Like they keep asking him why he does horrible things. I want to see what it felt like. Yeah. What did it feel like? And he just shrugs. Mm. So 
<laughs> with the ending, does he throw his parents under the bus? Yeah, he yeah. just tells the cops what happened after the parents went through all that trouble Ugh. to get rid of the body right. for him. For he some just reason, I thought like anyway. he was like, yeah, my parents killed her. No, he ju- he just shows or them confessed. the video. Of, yeah, yeah, the, like the whole thing and. Like, I guess yeah. he fears like, well, I'm a minor and yeah, right. And right. also, how do these guns work? Do y'all know? I know they had that one in um, No Country for Old Men, right? It's like air powered. Uh-huh. Yeah, because he had to shoot her three times. I think he's just bad at using her? it. Okay, yeah. maybe that's why. Because like, I don't know if he was like, it was an at first like, oh, maybe it was an accident. But then he did it again. I'm like, you still didn't kill her. And I then think he did it's it again. Supposed to be a bolt in the brain and yeah. severs some connection in your brain. It's oh. supposed to be a pretty humane way to kill an animal, but uh, he shoots her in the chest. So it's using this humane object in a way that it's not meant to be used. And it then becomes actually cruel because her death is like prolonged and he has to like keep doing it over and over again to actually that put enough holes in her for her to die. Horrible to watch. Yeah. You could just hear her like screaming and you can kind of see her crawling at moments. Yeah. But like, we don't pan away from it at all for like what? 20 minutes almost. It felt like one like, Two things about that make it uncomfortable. It's that, first of all, you're watching it through a screen, so right. it looks like a snuff film. Yes. And also, another thing he does all the time is rarely will he show you the violence on screen. It's usually right off screen, and you can hear it, but you can't see it. You just see like the aftermath. And that, to me, is like more fucked up than seeing it. It's like not giving you the satisfaction of the kill itself. Yeah. You just got to like think about what happens. Like it leaves a little bit more to your imagination when you don't want it to. <laughs> yeah. And in a thriller context, that's pretty chilling. Like mm-hmm. you can watch a lot of stuff. I don't know. Let's like the toxic Avenger where like the death is like super fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- he just sucks all the fun out of the room. And especially with the video art imagery. It's just like as cold and disconnected from emotion as possible. And like that just makes it more upsetting. Yeah. Um, and I think he's actually very good at making thrillers for that reason. I just also think he like severely undercuts any payoffs you would get out of it because I think he's morally opposed to you having a good time right. <laughs> watching this he, stuff. He said in one interview, he was like, I hate commercial or I hate consumer films. He purposely makes films that deny you what typical like Hollywood films would give you because it, you know, again, it, he wants to provoke you and he wants you to think more instead of just sitting there and passively taking the information you're given. So I feel like all these movies we talk about do that. Yeah. So this was one of the movies that I did not watch the first time James watched it. And I thought I would really not like it. But I thought that Benny would just be a sociopath, but I actually didn't feel like he was like, I mean, he obviously was kind of a sociopath, but I understood that death scene more than I thought I would. It's like, I've done things, I haven't killed anyone. Okay. But <laughs> I've done things where this I'm like- This is a recording. Yeah. <laughs> like, there was one time where I, I don't remember what was happening, but I was in middle school and I had like- a thing of ice cream and someone was bothering me like one of my friends was bothering me i was like i'm gonna like put this ice cream in your face and i didn't intend to do it but then they were like you're not gonna do that and i was like okay well fuck you then and then i did it (laughs) you know so when he when she calls him a coward it's like the second she does that it like something trips in his brain and he just pulls the trigger and then she's 
like screaming, obviously. And first, he, it seems like he's trying to like help her, and he keeps saying like, "I'll help you, I'll help you." But then she keeps screaming, so he like goes and gets another bolt. Like he's just panicking. She just, like, won't shut up. Yeah, yeah. and it, obviously, it's like he is acting inhumanely, but there is like some kind of sick logic to it. And then after the after it happens, he just goes about his life. But I do feel like there are some moments where he kind of has an understanding that he did something wrong and that it's not just violence that is witnessed behind a screen. And I think, like, the way that his parents treat him, like, why would he have a moral compass? There's no one guiding him. Right. Basically, they don't even really tell him, don't do this again. You know, like, he kills a girl and he gets to go on a vacation to Egypt his mom is upset, and then he comes back home, and all the evidence is gone. The most we see them interacting with any of their kids is like praising their daughter for being a good little capitalist, right? <laughs> Multi-level <laughs> marketing right, this, schemer. Yeah. But we don't actually see them interacting with her. They're watching a video of her succeeding as a like pyramid scheme. Yeah. Like at the end of the movie, I felt like I didn't feel like Benny was a good person, but I felt like he was a better person than his parents. Like at least he goes to the police. Maybe it's because. He, He's totally disconnected from reality and like doesn't care about any consequences. But I don't know. I just felt like there was something kind of human about him that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I think when I watched it the second time with you, I found the second half of the movie to be very interesting, like the reaction of the parents. And it made me think about, you know, I went to a private high school and like I remember kids that would there was a kid that wrecked like four different cars and each time he would get a brand new car and there's no consequence, no consequence. And it's like, it's on the parents. And like, so as bad as Benny is, the parents are worse. It's like your responsibility. And there's been all these, there's tons of examples of the kid doing awful things, but it's because the parent wasn't parenting. And so like Mm -hmm. that part of it, I thought was an interesting viewpoint. Like, when kids do awful things, it's usually because the parents have failed them. This is kind of interesting as like a stepping stone towards later films. Like you can tell the same person who made The Seventh Continent and made this. Like you can tell that's like an auteur mm-hmm. because like a lot of the same themes are repeated in both of them. But it kind of splits for me going forward because like in Cachet, it's very similar to this movie. But like the kids are kind of teaching the parents a lesson for like past crimes that there were no consequences for. But then it can split the other way towards funny games where like those privileged pricks are like straight up sociopaths and like But that goes back to Benny's video where I think it's more scary when like a serial killer says like I didn't kill because XYZ. It's like I just killed because I wanted to see what it's like to kill people. Like there's no answer mm-hmm. and that's more terrifying than like, oh my mom beat me as you know. Right. That's like truly terrifying. Yeah. It's a very chilling movie. I think he makes good thrillers. Like, yep. I'm sure he would hate hearing that, but <laughs> <laughs> they're very satisfying as genre movies until they aren't. And when they aren't, it feels very pointed and purposeful and like makes you question what you want out of films like this. Like, it's like, why would I want him to repeat that pattern and, and kill more people? I did not enjoy watching it the first time. Like, right. it was yeah. not fun <laughs> watching that girl squirm across the floor. The last thing I want to say is I loved Benny's room, which I don't know, maybe that says something about 
about me, but I thought it was cool. I wanted to go to a video store, like the video store he goes to. Yeah. I also thought his relationship with his dad is interesting because like the things that his dad is concerned about are so insignificant compared to what Benny is experiencing. Like his dad goes into Benny's room and he said, oh, it's kind of dank in here. You should, I don't know, freshen up the room a little bit. But he has no idea what Benny is watching and consuming. Like, and I think that is a generational thing. You know, media has changed so much and accessibility that young people have has changed so much. It's more private now. Yeah. And if you, you know, let your children just do whatever they want to do, like, they can find, like, vile shit that you would never have been able to. To get unless you really tried when like when the dad was a child. I feel like I would love his like anti smartphone movie. I think a lot of people would hate it because there are plenty (laughs) of movies that do that already. I think Happy End actually has a lot of smartphone footage in it. Yeah, which I'm pretty excited to see that. I would like to hear a report back on that because I'm just picturing like, you know, if you just watch YouTube now as a kid, like, okay, for example, my boss has a young child who loves to watch airplane footage. Like he Mm -hmm. loves watching airplanes take off or like the blue angels do tricks in the sky yeah. and stuff the way little kids like just get obsessed with like garbage trucks or something randomly. Right. Um, but if the kid watches YouTube unsupervised watching that footage, the next suggested video is usually plane crashes. Right. <laughs> so, like, oh my God. The dad has to be there all the time to yeah. make sure that his kid isn't watching like atrocity footage. Right. Just cause that's the natural course of like YouTube algorithms. Mm. So yeah, I think like uh, <laughs> that's funny. if this movie had a point, like it's only gotten worse uh, yeah. since the early nineties when it yeah, was Yeah, a lot of this stuff is pretty prophetic. I mean, this is like what you said, ninety two, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think he could even imagine how crazy it's gotten <laughs> now, thirty years later. I'm sure his like anti Instagram or anti YouTube mm-hmm. movie would be insufferable by most people's standards, right. but I think I would like be a kid that um, finds snuff films, right? Exactly. <laughs> Well, I had one more Hanukkah movie on my watch list, and it was one Brittany picked to talk about today. Oh, yeah. So um, the Hanukkah movie that I watched um, that I loved so much that I wanted to have as my choice is The Piano Teacher Mm. from 2001. So there's like some fun mommy issues in here. They're not fun. Fun is (laughs) an interesting (laughs) word for that. (laughs) And um, some awesome like romance i'm just kidding um (laughs) yes mommy issues lots of you know sexuality frustrations and confusion and um it's isabelle Huppert. you Uh, know she's fabulous so Mm -hmm. good so in this film she plays the role of erica and i i believe this movie is based on a novel that is also based on like a true yeah, it's like semi-autobiographical. Yeah. Yeah. Which I totally want to read it. Right. So Erica is this, she's a piano teacher in Vienna. And she lives with her mom in this apartment. And it's like, she has like no privacy at all. Like her mom is always like, where are you? Where are you going? What are you wearing? Why are you wearing this? And they have this relationship where it's like she'll beat the shit out of her mom but then run to be coddled like a child to her like all within the same breath she has a separate bedroom that she doesn't use because they sleep in twin beds pushed together yeah yes yeah it's uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) so what she does is she has like this interesting like exploration of her sexuality that she does like 
without her mother knowing. It's kind of like this private thing with herself where, you know, she'll go to like porno shops and sit in a booth and, you know, sniff a, a jizz rag. Um, <laughs> and then she'll, you know, go to drive-in movie theaters and, you know, the, while someone's, you know, fucking in a car, she just pisses on the side of them. And then she, um, you know, cuts up her vagina with oh. a razor blade while her mom's like, come to dinner. It's like she, I think it's like she thinks she, like, this is what turns her on. And I don't know. I'll get back to that, like, towards the end of it. Because, like, my thoughts on this shifted from this last watch than previously. Well, during, like, a private concert at someone's home, there is a guy, a young gentleman. So, Erica's probably in her 40s, early 40s. This guy's a little younger. He's in college. And he ends up being her, one of her piano students. And she has like this attraction towards him, but not, I don't know. I think she has like a kind of domineering style of uh, teaching people piano. Like she, she wants them to want her approval. So she's yeah. almost like a dominatrix in that room. <laughs> yes. And then he Absolutely. challenges her authority in a way that like really turns her off. Like he's like trying to like get one up on her at all times. Yeah, he's like very... Yeah. At first glance, like pretty charismatic and people like it and he's super talented. And I think that just sort of pisses her off. Like he's not willing to be. Because she's like very much like in the beginning, she's like, I got to make this fucker not my student. And she like doesn't vote for him during that like moment. And I I guess like that's where I was like, why is it because like she's attracted to him and doesn't want the temptation or like just does not like this guy? I think it's also so she loves Schubert. A lot. Uh-huh. And he plays, I mean, he plays Schubert very well. And I think during his audition, he plays so beautifully that it like genuinely moves her. Mm-hmm. And she, like, the camera is zooming in on her throughout that scene. And, you know, she starts off very guarded. And then you can see her kind of like breaking down and like tears are True. coming to her, like just welling up a little bit, but she's still stone faced. And I think that she feels kind of threatened by any expression of emotion in herself. Like that makes her react very strongly. Also, she makes a lot of sense. says like, why does he want to be a student? He yeah. obviously is fine without my right. like tutelage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he's going to school for something totally. He's like going to be an engineer. It's an engineer. Something. Yeah. yeah. Something not artistic. Well, they have a meet cute in a bathroom and they like <laughs> go at it. But he wants to like make out with her and he just wants to like have a very vanilla sexual encounter with her in this bathroom. And she's like, don't touch me. Don't make out with me. And like, let me suck your dick. But then she jacks him off too. And she's like, look at my face. Like, don't look at your dick. Like she's very controlling. And it's like kind of this like teacher student thing, even in their, you know, bedroom times and just in the bathroom. Just the driest hand job I've ever heard in my oh, life. Oh, yeah. And we have to watch all of it. Oh, and yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> it's like we're having sex with them, too. Like, yeah. I feel like I was, you know, <laughs> having sex with all these people. So <laughs> after, like, that encounter happens, she's like, I'm going to write you a letter for our next meeting. <laughs> and then she brings him to, like, her apartment and, like, has him. Well, after they barricade themselves in her room, because apparently her room doesn't have a lock on it, which is... so chilling because her mom is like this little terrifying little i don't know her mom kind of comes off in this weird like pervy way with her daughter to me which she gets challenged on that later where she's like 
if, if that's the tension you want to have, like, make out with me. Yes. She, like, throws herself at her mom, and it's like. And, like, pins her down. I'm like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> that scene shook me. Oh, shook so up. fucked shook, up. Shook, shook, shook. Whoa. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like her mom, like, knows, like, hey, you're bringing this guy in, probably gonna have sex with him, but she, like, rushes to the room and is, like, trying to listen and trying to be like, what are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? And just, like, over overbearing. So they barricade the room with, like, a bookshelf, and then he kind of reads the letter out to her and she has this whole thing where it's like you know i want you to tie me up um i'm gonna show you the box where i keep all this hardware i want you to kick me in the stomach and you know do all this stuff which was so interesting because i'm like oh like she is essentially being like i want you to dominate me but i want to be in control of you dominating me that's how all bottoms are though it's like you lay out your uh that bob flanagan quote i say all the time but it's like I will do anything that I tell you to tell me to do. Yeah. Which is like, right. uh, you know, it's like you are in control as the person who is receiving right. this stuff. It's like yeah. the same dynamic in the Duke of Burgundy. Exactly. Too. Yeah. Still haven't seen it. But it's heartbreaking because she lays out all these cards on the table, like makes herself so vulnerable. And then the Bold. response she gets is, you know. Yeah. He's like, uh, yeah, no. Just yeah, rejects yeah, her yeah, yeah. Um, straightforward sex. Because I'm like a 20 year old. Exactly. You know college jock dude. jock dude yeah he's, yeah. Like a, hockey he's a hockey boy which Ugh. yeah the next thing that happens with these guys is she goes and finds him at his little hockey practice and he kind of kind of at the first time in their sexual relationship gets to have his way and she pukes <laughs> because she's just like disinterested i just think it's just this uncomfort of like she's still like exploring her exploring her sexuality as a 40 year old woman and like that kind of intimacy like she just isn't comfortable with it like anything that's like lovey-dovey or like like has any kind of emotion or like regular sex to it like where she's not kinking it up in a way like she just does not like it i didn't feel that that was like a lovey-dovey i don't know i just really hated this guy (laughs) i think he i mean it, it was like very aggressive yeah and like it felt like he was just getting on. I don't know that that was just kind of like the underlying feeling was like this guy just wants to get off and he like resents her for not for like turning him on and not letting him get off like that without is negotiation main... without like, right setting boundaries this like whole thing yeah yeah well then he that pisses him off after she kind of pukes but if he was the guy she wanted he would have been turned on by the vomit <laughs> I like totally thought of that too. I'm like, God, if he would have been like, ooh, she would have been like, finally. Um, well, he breaks into their her house, or forces himself into her apartment later on, and he's so like emasculated by what she did, and he like has this. He throws her mother in a room and essentially rapes her, and it's for some reason it's like in that moment where she's like getting raped, and you have to like watch her face the whole time. I think, like, I felt so bad for her because, well, A, she was getting raped, but, like, I think she was kind of realizing, like, she doesn't understand, like, what sex is and what, what she likes. And I think, like, in that moment, she was probably, like, I probably don't like this and I don't think I can ever, like, do this with anybody. I, 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 I disagree thought, with that. Well, I, I thought it was, like, this dynamic, this rape fantasy thing would yeah. have been okay if we would have talked about it and negotiate, like, yeah. and... That that's to me what was so complex about that scene, like the act itself. Of course, it is terrible. Rape is yeah. terrible, but like people have rape fantasies, and if oh, for sure. people are on the same page, like it can be sexy and what. And they never just that act of like. 
they didn't talk about it or negotiate anything well, makes it an atrocity. It's a difference between the real thing and playing pretend. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, basically, kink is like adult playtime. Yeah. Like, I want you to do these things to me, but she doesn't actually want to be like beaten to death. Like, she just wants, you know, to be controlled in a way that she wants to be controlled. Mm-hmm. And he um, misunderstands willfully the kind of violence that she's talking about. He doesn't simulate it. He like actually beats the shit out of her. Right. Well, he her. does it because he's like, yeah, you want to get beat up? I'm going to beat you up. Yeah. That's right. like how he does it. It's like vengeful. Not right. What yeah. It is, yeah. I just feel, I don't know how to like say it, but it's like, she just, she doesn't know what she wants. Like at first, like when I first watched this, I was like, she knows what she wants. This is it. She's being very clear. And then after seeing it, I'm like, I think she's just so, because of the, abuse from her mother and like her never being her own self and not making decisions for herself like it's like she's like whenever kids start masturbating for the first Mm -hmm. time and they're like oh this is weird i guess i like this i don't know it's kind of like she's tapping into all this stuff and like doesn't really know what totally turns her on i don't know i I kind of felt that i mean i think it's also like when she's telling him about her fantasy, she is being vulnerable. And it's yeah. it's like very sweet when she lays out all of her various like <laughs> chains and toys yeah. and tools kind of like and his response, she's never told that to anyone yeah, before. It's like and his response to her is just like so cruel and he's yeah. like you disgust me, you're repulsive. Right. And when he rapes her, like, that is where he's coming from. Like, you're disgusting. And I'm, like, mad that you turn me on. So I'm going to, you know, give you what you wanted. But it's not coming from a place of, like, I understand, like, what you're asking. and, And we're going to, like, engage in this together. Right. And I think that does make a difference. I don't know. This was my favorite movie we mm-hmm. watched. It's probably my favorite Hanukkah movie I've seen. It's like probably one of the best. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's because I don't feel like there is a specific lesson yes. that I'm being taught. I, mm-hmm. I, agree. I don't feel like he's like rubbing my face and piss. Yeah. Well, it's I, also, I, I, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's also not only, defined on how you should yeah. feel. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think when he leaves it open ended, when it's about like social issues or yeah. consumption or whatever, like, it can feel a little preachy. This is the same open-endedness, but it's a character study, mm-hmm. a really interesting one involving, you know, sexuality. Mm-hmm. And like, we're having this conversation. I feel like no one can really say a hundred percent. This yeah. is what her psychology was, but he gives you just yeah. enough to where like, you can have the conversation, exactly. but the, there are no answers really. And it's also the only one that he didn't write didn't yeah write. you know yeah. it's so and the story is coming from the perspective of a woman who in and the story is semi-autobiographical so it's like a lived-in complicated story and he's just kind of bringing it to life and i, I kind of wondered like for the first hour i was like could anyone have directed this like it didn't really yeah. feel like his usual stuff mm-hmm. really until that rape sequence I was like, oh, well, there's the Hanukkah. I know <laughs> yeah. and tolerate. Uh, but I like, <laughs> put it in like form, form, it definitely feels like a Hanukkah. Like, yeah. the look of it and the shot choices. Yeah, it's is, cold, it's still. Yeah. But like, it feels kind of like any erotic thriller to me until that See, sequence where it dwells on the misery. I, I would disagree with that just in that scene with the her meeting him at the hockey yeah. rink. Like, I think the fact that that whole scene is uninterrupted without any cuts, it removes all eroticism from it. It feels like wrong 
I don't think it felt that different than the sex, quote unquote, sex scene in um, Basic Instinct when Michael Douglas basically rapes Gene Triplehorn. Like the feeling was about the same mm. to me. The rape I mean, scene later on like removes all eroticism from even being a possibility in a way that's just like it's just an act of violence. Yeah. I think like the ultimate tragedy of it, like you could either, okay. What I was afraid of was that it was going to be teaching a lesson about kink and like how like playing out these fantasies or indulging these fantasies leads you to like actual, like dark impulses. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I think it more plays out just like a tragedy that she met the wrong partner. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. This is kind of like an, I can fix her movie for me where like (laughs) I look at her and like, you know, she's very attractive woman. She like knows what she wants. Uh, It's like, well, I wish uh, I could have like been there, you know. <laughs> it's like it's like hard to watch her hook up with this young. Yeah, brute. it's hard because yeah. it's a huge deal for her because we understand like her life and all her experiences more. And for him, it's just like this, you know, hot teacher fantasy, hit it and quit it moment. Like after he gets what he wants, like he he won't. Well, he doesn't love her. He doesn't want to have a relationship with her. But in her mind, I think she's like. I'm going to let you into this like secret world I have on my own. I don't don't know. I'm like thinking about what you were saying about like what's going through her mind during that end. And it's like, to me, it's just like a difference between fantasy and reality. Like the things that make you horny in like vague concept are not things you want to happen in real life. I think that's how I saw it where I think in her mind, like her being like, fuck, like, is this not my kink? And I guess like, as you're exploring your kinks and things like that, you're going to have those moments where you're like, I thought this was something. I don't think it's, what i'm into at all because it's she's going through a period of sexual exploration which she should have had when she was 18 or 20 or something like but she's a, 40 a more experienced partner that has done this kind of like dominance dynamic before would be able to simulate that danger without actually inflicting pain on her yeah right or at least not pain that she didn't want to feel like obviously he's not doing what she wants. Well, he's not. Yeah. He is not the partner for it. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. And that just sucks. Like it just, well, it's hard to watch. Well, to think too, like, well, what if like that's something you're in, well, that ruined it for her. So it's like, if you, so I guess like the partner you have this with makes the world of a difference on how you move mm-hmm. forward with it. Yeah. I like started out with the, the guy that she's into Sort of being like, he's all right. He's a dumb jock, but like, he's a talented dude. And maybe no, they can like, no. I, yeah, I know Hannah and you didn't feel, but like my like viewpoint of that character went on a downhill trajectory as the movie kept going on where I gave him the benefit of the doubt in the beginning. Like, I don't know, maybe they can. And it's like, oh, wait, no, this yeah. guy is not the one to try any of this stuff with. He's like a dumb jock yeah. rapist. In the very early part of the movie where he is playing music and there's a moment where he um, is helping Isabel Hubert's uh, student who's going to play Schubert in a recital. I thought, oh, maybe this is a really like kind of kind young man who's very connected to music and this is something that they can like they have in common. Um, And then the second he said in the bathroom how can you leave me without getting me off? Like I yeah. like you you don't do that to a man. I was like, absolutely. No, but fuck but this let's guy. not pretend that like she is totally likable. I mean, she puts well, shards no. of glass in this girl and like <laughs> no, ruins her hand. Like she is yeah, psychologically she has, damaged. Yeah, she, she is has bad yeah. too. Yeah. These are two bad people. It's not like <laughs> yeah. she is good and she just wants to explore no. these kinks. Like she's fucked up. She's inexperienced and she's threatened by any person. 
the only place she has control in her life is outside of her mother's eye, outside of her periphery. And the only place she's allowed to do that is at this like music academy. Yeah. And there she is very well respected mm-hmm. and has power. And any threats to that power is like, I think what makes her uncomfortable. Yeah. So, like, the student becoming like confident in herself and like becoming like a star pupil. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. So yeah. she like nips that in the bud. Right. And <sighs> then this guy coming in, like already being very good. She's like, I don't need that. Like, I don't need his like confident <laughs> ass in my like studio. I want to be the one in charge. Here. Yeah. Well, from what I read, I think the book does give you more of the actual psychology of why she's doing yeah, she's, yeah. And there's, like, stuff with there's the f- like flashbacks in the book that go yeah. back to her childhood mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff as I well. I think it was really smart for Hanukkah to, he purposely took all that out. Because yeah. like, I don't want it to be that easy. Yeah, for he you. doesn't want to like, give us and it, the reason. I don't know. I love him for that. This felt <laughs> a little bit like Benny's video to me with the whole parental issue. Like his parents were very neglectful. Well, one, I think her dad's in like a mental institution and her mom is just super overbearing and insane. Mm-hmm. So it it's kind of like she feels like an older Benny. I mean, all four of these movies are about awful parents. Yeah. Bad, parents. <laughs> yeah. Bad parents. Bad parents. This one might have the most slaps to the face between a parent and child. And also the most makeout sessions between, between parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is one. 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 <laughs> what were his, what were like Hanukkah's parents like? Did he have a good childhood or were his parents like shitty? No. I, Do y'all he, know? He is a happy everything I've yeah, read. Yeah, I think they are just like d- totally distanced. And I think they were also filmmakers and like sort of well off and helped him get on his feet in the industry. Yeah. And- oh, I'm sorry. You were talking about actual Hanukkah. Yeah. Not- yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Like, this is a thing. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I like this movie. Um, I was just like, I loved the the period of just watching her do all that fun, dirty stuff. Yeah. I, I think in <laughs> on the, her Hanukkah, own. <laughs> the Hanukkah canon, this is his most like human mm-hmm. feeling film yeah. it doesn't even though the style and the form of it might be cold it feels really personal and that's why i really love this one and it had the final scene is one of the most haunting Oof. so isabel hooper throughout this entire movie is stone-faced and then she goes to this recital and she's kind of waiting to see this boy and they're like waiting for him to come in and he sees her and he just kind of waves and says hello like very yeah. like nonchalant yeah. about it and she can i say what happens yeah sure okay we spoiled so, all of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so the expression on her face is like the most like disgusting contorted like grimace i've ever seen and then she just like stabs herself in the shoulder with a knife and i i just have never seen someone make a face that made me feel so strongly it was like such so much pain and i like i just think isabel hubert is an amazing actress like to keep that stone face going through the entire movie and then just to show so much without like telling anything is incredible to me and i think too that it is sort of an anti-ending in that you kind of wanted to stab the dude but thematically it makes all the sense that she would turn it mm-hmm. on herself right. yeah and we don't know what happens to right. her after that and we, yeah, she just walks she out just of walks the- out of the night is she gonna kill herself <laughs> right I mean, possibly her life's not gonna get better yeah <laughs> I, I know that much <laughs> i don't know that's a really good just combination of collaborators too like uh 
she has a very icy remove in a mm-hmm. lot of her roles. And, you know, icy remove is like his main thing, really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if he has a sort of underlying thesis about bad parentage leading to atrocity i oh, feel like boy. the last movie uh is like a pretty like clearly laid out expression of that yeah. thesis yeah so my selection um was the white ribbon which was directed in 2009 um i love it when we do a director episode because i never have to remember <laughs> really i don't have to write down who the director is <laughs> so this is set in a small german village just prior to world war one and it's told as kind of a recollection by this man who used to be a school teacher in the village. And he start he sets the film off by saying, you know, a series of strange events happened in my village and that they may provide a wider context for what was happening in the world as a whole. So the first of these unfortunate events is that there is a wire um, set up between two trees at the village doctor's home and he's riding a horse um, back to his home and the horse trips he falls and has to be carted to a hospital a few villages away um, nobody knows who set the wire no one knows why it happened one thing is that all of these children <laughs> are like obsessed with the injury from the doctor and the kind of like creeping around. So the film follows this village for like, I think it's like a year and a half or maybe two years. And various people have accidents or die like the farmer's wife dies in a mill accident. Various children are found like beaten with canes. And in between these events and accidents, we kind of get these windows into the lives of these families. Like we spend a lot of time with a preacher's family. He has two children that lie to him that he kind of uh, viciously beats with a cane. He forces them to wear white ribbons on their arm and in their hair to remind them of their purity. There's just like a lot of families beating up their children. There's like three main abusive men in the town. Yeah. The priest, the baron, and the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. There's another man, too, that, like, beats his children. And it's... <laughs> there's, like, a lot of a lot of child... And it's it's really vicious beatings. It's not, like, a, a slap or... No, it's, like... Yeah. Yeah, a punch in the face, kicking, and surrounding all of these incidents, this, like, cadre of children is always kind of, like traveling around to the families of the people that are targeted and like oh yeah we just want to see how they're doing it's like very strange and eerie it actually reminded me of like children of the corn i was thinking village of the damned yeah 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 Yeah. same thing just like so quiet and just like observing right it's like creepy yeah yeah and they're like very nice little german 1800s uh clothing and we're also kind of following the school teacher as he's trying to court a woman that was the midwife or was the nanny for the baron's children um, and then is fired when, you know, the baron is like the baron's child is targeted and then he's very suspicious of all the townspeople and like fires everyone in his house. Um, so basically the village 
morale degrades. People like keep dying. They keep killing themselves. And the film kind of ends right at the assassination of uh, Ferdinand, which was, you know, the catalyst for World War One. And the murder is never solved. Uh, or the the perpetrators behind the accidents are never found, although it is like pretty clear. Yeah, I feel like people are like say a lot. You know, he leaves it open ended, like for you to interpret what the yeah. ending is. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, he did I all think, this. Not, right. not in I this think one. It's, what do you mean? No, no I'm sorry. it is clear. In this one, oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry. In this one, it's clear. In like cachet and. Some other one, but I was watching this interview with him and Darren Aronofsky for HBO, Uh and this came out. And um, Aronofsky's like, "Do you know who did it? Like, do you have a clear idea who did it?" And he's like, "I'm not going to answer that question. I like to leave it open for interpretation, so audiences can think about it." It's like, I think it's pretty clear, clear cut. Like, who else could it possibly have been? Right? Yeah, it was. We know who it is. The kiddos. The kids. Okay. The The kiddos. The (laughs) weird, scary kiddos. Little rascals. Because they've been (laughs) abused by their parents for their entire lives. But I feel like. This is a hard movie to summarize because there's yeah. like so many characters, right? And there's a it's long too. It's his longest yeah, movie, yeah. two and a half hours, and it's sprawling in time and scope. Yeah. So yeah, it's h- yeah. hard to give like a plot <laughs> summary of <laughs> yeah, this. It's because more I... about like a tone. Yeah. Like for me, the black and white cinematography is the first thing that just catches your eye. Yeah. It's just so beautiful to look at. And it's so heavy with the themes. It's mm-hmm. like about everything. It's about right. human evil on every level of. So it's like a big, important, sprawling. Well, it was originally movie. written as a miniseries, and it oh, kind of feels it? like TV yeah. in that way, where like yeah. you know, TV can have this many characters because then you can have an episode focusing on like one of the families. I mean, I struggled in the first hour to keep track of. Wait, who's this kid? Mm-hmm. Who's their dad? And but about halfway through, you do get a good understanding of yeah who all these characters and how they're related to each other. I don't know if it's because it's like black and white, but for like the first half until I started understanding like who each character was, I kept like mixing them up because they all kind of look alike a little yeah. bit. Because like you know, all the women have like buns in their hair, and some are like blonde, and like all the dudes are like old with beard. Like I don't know. I it was um it was hard, but I understood later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I do think yeah it it is hard to summarize. I just tried to do it, and it was. Very you did a good job. No, you did a great job. It's just yeah. like it's like twenty different yeah. like stories right. going on at the same time. A lot um, of parallel paths. Yeah, but it kind of generally talks about power differentials and abuse of power in, you know, various um, modes of living, like in religion, in the family, in, uh, you know, even like nationally in a government, like, you know, there are obviously tensions between the baron and the community. And I think it's actually one of his most accessible (laughs) movies it was, I, I agree with yeah you. it was like the least kind i think i thought it was the least open to interpretation i thought yeah there yeah, were yeah there were like several monologues that kind of clearly stated the themes of the movie and i think for that reason it actually wasn't my favorite i kind of like i liked mm. that the piano teacher had 
some like obscurity, like some things that I didn't quite understand, but I but I felt um, this felt like a like a pretty straightforward movie, even though it's two and a half hours long and it's just like <laughs> chock full of abuse. Like you said, the power dynamics and how they exist between in religion, it's like God punishes me if I'm bad, but mm-hmm. I have to love him. In the home, my dad beats me, but I have to kiss his hand and tell him I love him. On a state level, my government like abuses me and goes to war, but I have to like be nationalistic uh-huh. and patriot. Like on every level of violence, like so that's like a big scope. That's like about just yeah. evil in general. And I that the building blocks of fascism, right? Right, and authoritarian and like. I was kind of skeptical that the movie could pull it off, and it does pull it off. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right that it is his least open to interpretation. Yeah. But it's still, yeah, beautiful. It was. And- I think it's probably like in the middle, or like just. I, Piano Teacher is my favorite Hanukkah, but th- this is like close to the top. I don't know. I mean, it's like there's a lot to chew on, but I I felt like it was resolved in my in my mind. I don't know. This one feels probably like the one that like most people probably are into. I'm assuming. I didn't really look, but I'm like, I can see well, everybody the being Palme like Dior, obsessed. Yeah. Right. This and Amor, his yeah. two that won. So it's like a critical darling. Those are the exact yes. two that I hate. Like, I hate this movie. <laughs> well, well, what's interesting about that is like, it does feel like he got less confrontational over time. Like, yeah. he went from this to Amor. And again, I haven't seen his latest, but like those two feel like crowd pleasers to the Sundance crowd. Like, they're are not- they? Yeah, I think so. I would describe both of those films as a parade of miseries, but not miserable in the same way that like Benny's video or Seventh Continent is miserable. It's more like it's like Oscar friendly in the way that it's like, uh, you know, important movies are sad. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's important because it's sad and has a real life connection. Um, in a more, you know, to the like ravages of old age, and in this one, the ravages of abuse. Yeah, but it's not as like I don't know as subversive as his earlier yeah. films are. That. It's like yeah. mm-hmm. a, a crowd pleasing to the art house crowd that would go yes. to Sundance. Old like, people, yeah, old <laughs> art house people. They would like most art house theaters like survive on old people who just go to things because they're smart. Like you go, you go see an art movie because it's prestigious and you know makes you feel like you're like doing something important. Mm-hmm. And those two movies do that, and mm-hmm. I think they're both kind of useless. Uh, so you, you I, didn't I like this, this movie? At all. Yeah, really. Just like I get the point behind it, like thematically, but like uh-huh. in practical terms, what you're watching is like long scenes of a child learning about death like the most adorable child you've ever seen is like i'm gonna die <laughs> and like I, I that like goes that. on forever <laughs> I, that worked for me i don't know the scene where like the doctor oh dresses down his um yeah that was his lover and just calls her disgusting which is kind and of I the same theme die. as like yeah piano teacher which and that is like one scene but like here it's like like i said a parade of miseries and the the scene that really pissed me off was the kid um, who just had his eyes like yeah, that was in. awful. Like Carly, and you just listen to him moan in pain for like minutes, which is yeah. what pissed me off in Amore as well. It's just like I don't need to sit through this. Have you ever if you ever watch like a bunch of Oscar nominated movies? They all feel like this. It's like all Holocaust dramas where like you watch someone squirm in pain for like minutes. Mm-hmm. On but end. I mean, but how is that 
Well, I guess there is a difference between that and like Benny's video, like where you're watching her die and you're hearing her screams and that's not that much different than it's one skin- thing that happens for a few minutes. It's not like three hours of just like over and over and I, over I think again. The reason that I would defend this movie is I think it is so aesthetically pleasing. The black, like is it? Yeah. Eh. The black and white, the black and white just does it for, he's never done a black and white. It's like film digital design. black and white. You see that CG horse get tripped and you're like, eh. it just doesn't look well, that nice to me. Well, apparently the, film stock for black and white is so expensive that they had to film it in color and then take all you can uh, tell the color out. And I think, I don't know, like there are some scenes and shots in here that I think are some of the most beautiful cinematography he's ever done. It felt pretty pedestrian to me, to be honest. Like it felt like a TV miniseries. I mean, it's <laughs> definitely his most like Oscar bait. Um, yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so now that I know that you're not that much into this movie, like years ago, you had like given me a bunch of VHS tapes and this was one of them. Really? And you were like, yeah, to watch these. Cece <laughs> told me, I, I told her what movies we were watching. She's like, oh, you saw the white ribbon. You hated it. I was like, I have no recollection of that movie whatsoever. <laughs> you just wiped it from your mind. And watching it again, I did not remember any of this stuff and it didn't stick with me the it's way these other films have. Film. Yeah, no, it's there, just bland to me. There are two, there are two scenes in this film. I'm not going to try to like defend it till I'm blue in the face, but there's two <laughs> scenes that I think are in his top 10 scenes of any films of his that I've seen. One is actually, it's two scenes where the preacher is admonishing his son for masturbating. And then Ugh. there's a cut. <laughs> no, no, no. But there's a cut. The very next scene you see from behind someone having sex from behind and like that part of your brain makes that connection like oh that's the preacher molesting his son and the characters turn around you see it's a totally different couple he's done that in a few films where he plays with your expectation and cuts to a scene where you think you know what this is and it's not it subverts it and that's like the best example of that in any of his films so I think that's great. And I think the scene where the son walks in on his father who's hung himself and it's a long take. He closes the door, hangs his head, is one of the most effective scenes I've ever seen of someone like walking in on a suicide. Mm-hmm. Like There are moments in this movie that are really beautiful and heartbreaking. You know, as a whole, not my favorite yeah. Hanukkah I would agree with Hannah. It's probably in the middle yeah. tier somewhere, but it's not a, it's not crap. I mean, I think it's pretty bland and the things you have to sit through for that payoff are like insulting. It's like, you're going to make me sit through this for a movie that is like pretty cut and dry. Like I'm not thinking about it and trying to piece apart what things mean. And I'm yeah. not like sitting in my own discomfort about like how I interact with the world. I'm just like, yeah, I guess bad shit happens. And I guess if I wanted to like watch every miserable thing a person could do to another person, I could sit down and watch this again. <laughs> but I'd rather just move on with my life. And I, I do kind of hate that prestige films that are taken seriously are this over and over and over again. It's just like traumatic dramas are what is respected and like what is like hailed as important movie making. And I think that's kind of bullshit. But I think it's interesting that 
Hanake, he has this like famous viewpoint that like he hates Schindler's List. Like Schindler's mm-hmm. List is his least favorite movie because you're making something sentimental, this like genocide and essentially like putting on a t-shirt so we can cry about it. And like his films don't do that. Even if they are prestige. It's not as romantic. No. And like you never cry in a Haneke film, which is what I found interesting. I watched all 12 and I cried in a lot of movies and I never once got emotional watching any of these. But I don't think doing that same style of filmmaking from an emotional remove makes it any more worthwhile. Like it's the same kind of storytelling anyway. And to intellectualize it instead of emotionalize it, I don't think makes it any easier to sit through or more like nourishing to my brain in any way. It's kind of the same vibe to me as like the kind of like Schindler's List style Holocaust dramas. Like I don't mind his super moralistic storytelling in a thriller template Mm -hmm. because there is an inherent entertainment value to movies that he is playing with in those films. He doesn't always give you what you want, well, but by withholding it. Yeah. By withholding or subverting, he is at least setting up a reason for you to watch. And like, you have to question why he made decisions to make it less entertaining on purpose. But like, there mm-hmm. is still an, an entertainment to those films. Mm-hmm. This, I just, I found it boring and hard to sit through. <laughs> like, I don't really know what else to say about it. I can't imagine someone being like, that's my favorite movie. I watch it all the time. That'd be a big <laughs> right. red flag. Right. I think. That, yeah. yeah. I was I was saying when I was talking to James, like, I would be a little weary of anyone that said Hanukkah was their favorite director. Like, yeah. I mean, even though he makes movies that are obviously interesting and thought provoking and important, like, I don't know. It's just... You you can't just seep yourself in that worldview. I think that's like a very uh, very bad road to go down. It's like movies where I like them and like some I really like, like The Piano Teacher and Seventh Continent. But I'm not gonna be like, man, I can't wait to like watch that you know Hanukkah right. movie again all over. But yeah, and that's the thing. It's like I don't really feel the need to revisit. Yeah, these any, but I don't think that's necessarily bad i think Mm -hmm. art can be confrontational and difficult and it can make you think and that's like that's just as good as like trash that's fun to consume you know like i like it both ways and Mm -hmm. that's kind of why i want to talk about him because i feel like typically we talk about genre like fun genre films and he's more fun to talk about yeah (laughs) yeah they're more fun to talk and his stuff is like really heavy and philosophical and it's just that's the other side of film that I really, really enjoy. I, and it, usually I like stuff that mixes the two. And so I see your point when like funny games or Benny video mm-hmm. were like, you're mixing the high art and the low art. And so I don't know, like I'm glad that at least everyone got something out of oh, yeah. these yeah. movies. And like, I liked them. I, I was scared, especially with Brandon, because I know how much he hated them more. I was like, oh my God, he's going to hate all these movies. <laughs> But now that I see what you're saying with um, White Ribbon, I get where your line is. I just can't imagine getting anything out of watching this apparently a third time. Where like <laughs> I could rewatch the other three films. It wouldn't be fun, but I could rewatch them and get something different yeah. out of them. Yeah. White Ribbon will be the same every time you watch it. I think that's true. And I think when I finished it, I was like, yeah, I get what that was. 
and like there were particular scenes that kind of clung on to me but the ideas in the film didn't cling on to me in the way that all of the other ones did and like I would never put myself through watching a movie like this unless there was like maybe I'll watch The Seventh Continent again in like a decade like that is my timeline for watching it Hanukkah but (laughs) but I can't you there's no justification for doing it if you like got it the first time Mm -hmm. I honestly came out of this a bigger fan than I went into it. Like, this <laughs> episode. Good. A success. That makes me happy. I had to go back and listen to us talk about Cache, and I was like, oh yeah, I enjoyed that movie, and I talked about enjoying funny games in the conversation. But like this one was the one I was dreading the most, and it was the one I only one I hated. <laughs> I think after seeing all of them, I think my top three are Seventh Continent, Piano Teacher, and Cache. Mm-hmm. For different reasons, but they're all yeah. Really, really good. Well, mm-hmm. Let me ask you, we've talked about a lot of his movies on this episode, but you've seen more than we've discussed. Are there any like of his under-discussed films that you think like people should I pay think attention to? Code Unknown Okay, uh, with Juliette Binoche is a really interesting... It, again, it's challenging. It's like taking a narrative, kind of like you know Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. He gives you different perspectives of the same thing. This is sort of doing that, but like pulling out just enough information to where you don't quite get it, but you get it. And like, it's a really interesting film. So yeah, I would say code unknown. If you're into some of the other bigger ones we've talked about, like that's a good, what was the one with the really long title? That one caught my attention too. Uh, was it like 70? 71 fragments of, of et cetera. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exa- that, that and code unknown are kind of like brother, sister. sister they like, it's the exact same thing. Like, it's literally seven, 71 scenes that kind of tell a disjointed narrative mm-hmm. of this one event. So, yeah, those are both like cool and worth checking out. Yeah, I think Funny Games is great. And Funny Games. Like, I like rewatching it. Yeah. yeah. I was like, damn. Especially when he hits that rewind. I was like, holy Ooh. shit, you trickster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How dare you do Ooh. that? Like, Did you have a preference between the American and the Austrian one? The American remake is so stupid because like his whole thing was like i want to do a shot for shot remake because american audiences need to see this and he thought that it would reach a wider audience in america but the crowd he's catering to is like the art house crowd anyway so already seen it yeah Yeah. they already saw it the first time and nobody in america a mainstream audience wanted to see it so it made no money and he didn't change anyone's opinion. Mm-hmm. So it just felt totally unnecessary. Unnecessary. Okay. Well, we will be discussing something a lot easier to digest next week. Uh, Boomer picked a Netflix release from 2019 called Fractured, which I feel like has Ooh. no cultural stamp whatsoever. <laughs> um, it stars Sam Worthington. Also, again, someone with like, no one really thinks about that much. He's uh, the guy in Avatar. He's in Avatar. And in the uh, three planned Avatar sequels that are coming out. (laughs) Jesus. Who knows when. But it is a trashy little psychological thriller with a lot of twists and turns. I've seen it. You've seen it? Yeah. Any opinions? It's just a good like psychological thriller. It's like Netflix has done a few of these where it's like Netflix original like psychological thriller movies i watched one last night i forgot the name of it but it's exactly like, yeah it's, it's it's similar but they all have the same vibe where i'm like i don't not major named actors in it it feels like the same director did all of them if that makes sense yeah 
And I feel like they have a shelf life of about three weeks. Yeah. Uh, and then people, they, they disappear from the map. And they all look the same. Yeah. That's what gets me. There's no like visual style. The interesting thing about this one is that Boomer has a personal connection to its <gasps> production. Not oh that he was involved God. in the making of the movie, but cool. he had a extra textual reason for wanting to revisit it. So I think it'll be interesting to dive a little deeper into these like trashy disposable films that are, you know, yeah. streamed for a minute and then just sort of hang out on that service. I wonder when the last time four people sat down to watch Fractured in the same week was, but you know, it's on <laughs> Netflix all the time. And that'll be our next Lanyap episode. In the meantime, check out Swampflix.com where I'm posting daily movie reviews. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.